Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. I was tempted to put uh, in this week together an email, a compliment of thank yous and words of acknowledgement that we received just in the last two weeks from all over the world, literally thanking us for resources, for the media, etc. One from a particular well-known individual, I'm not going to mention his name here publicly, but a particular global person living in the, the USA that says how richly, we have no idea how richly, an author of multiple books, and what, what it means to them, what we are delivering. I want you to understand that what we're delivering locally is global consumption. But uh, I often say my great fear is the people furthest from us seem to be the greatest beneficiaries of what we deliver here. Because when you're so close to a thing, you sometimes disesteem it. I want to always encourage you, never ever lose your priority for the Word of God. Amen. Amen. Never lose the sense of, of, um, of, of appreciation for the words delivered unto you. Judas was so close to Jesus, yet betrayed Him. It's like you can be so close to a reality, yet not fully appreciate what that reality means. How can you hear all those teachings? For three and a half years, Judas... How can you be privy to all the miracles? How can, you, how can you still do what you did, betray the Lord, after seeing what you saw? How can you still do what you did after hearing every single Bible study delivered personally by the Lord to you? How can you observe a man for three and a half years and yet still embark upon a course of action contrary to the man? Yeah? You can be so close to a reality, yet not imbibe its fullest Um, intended grace download. So I want to encourage us all to really start to value and don't take for granted the things that that we receive. Amen. I want to just wrap up the segment on submission now. Submission we have been discussing for the past three weeks. This is the third part in discussing submission as a key disposition to accessing grace. I want to remind you though that submission is an expression of Humility and insubmission is an indication of pride. When you're not submitted, you are proud. And the Bible says God will resist the proud, but that he will give grace to the, to the humble. And we looked at the anatomy of, of submission a few weeks ago, and you've discussed this at length this week in your house church meetings. I must say, I went, we, we administrated two house church meetings this week because we both lead a separate one, so we both support each other when we, we lead the other one. And um, I must admit, the discussions were so rich, so profound. And for me, it's, it's a marvelously consoling thought that the principles are being imbibed. The principles are being internalized. Amen. And I really want to encourage you. Um, I do Facebook posts. I schedule them usually three weeks in advance. So when you see my, my Facebook posts, n- most times when I write, a thought grabs me a little sentence or two, I cut and paste it to my Hootsuite social management program. Hootsuite I use to manage Twitter and Facebook. What I do is I have a little timetable in my diary. I, I normally do two posts on Facebook every day, one in the morning and one in the evening. I just find it gets the most coverage in terms of how people access it. And so that entire study on submission, I broke up into snippets and I posted it for three weeks, two posts per day, seven days in one week, three weeks, 21 days, two posts per day, 42 posts over a three-week period, two per day. Those posts, if you look at it, if if you just browse my Facebook wall, receive the most likes and the most feedback of any subject I have posted on previously in such a fashion. 
what it told me that the issues of submission and or insubmission is paramount on the heart of God for His church today. Um, we received great feedback from people who said the posts were helpful because they're struggling with these issues uh, on insubmission. I want to encourage you, if you master submission, you will master the grace-filled life. He who is submitted is grace-filled. Right? He who is the submitted man or the submitted woman is the authoritative man or the authoritative woman. And I want to encourage you, you will never grow or grow to a, lit, a certain level in authority beyond the degree of your submission. It's the lower, the lower you go, the higher you go. The more you can bow, the more God will elevate you. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will, he will lift you up. For our present purposes, we recently have been examining the life of Jesus as a model example of what it means to be submitted. You must please bear in mind, whenever you study anything about our Lord Jesus Christ, you're studying a Jew, a man, a son of man, who walked on this planet for 33 years, and he came as God in the form of human flesh to show humans how humans could live as sons of God while in this present earth environment. So the Son of God became the Son of Man to show sons of men how to live like sons of God. His life is a textbook case study, an example of how humans can live in this present age with such accuracy, pleasing to God, that in their humanity, their divinity as God's sons could shine forth. Jesus was both God's son and he was Joseph's son. He was both the son of man and he was the son of, and he was the son of God. He, more than any person in the scripture, modeled for us what it truly means to be submitted. Now, I don't want to read the text because of time. But we read at length Luke chapter 2, remember? Luke chapter 2, uh, let me just read, let's just read it quickly. Can we do that? Just quickly, Luke 2 from verse 41 to 52. While they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to the city of Nazareth. Verse 40. And the child grew and became strong increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Now, it's important for you to note on whom was the grace of God on? On whom? The child. Everyone say the child. Right? So the child here at this point is approximately two years old with grace on him. And, but the Bible says there was a growth in physical stature. He was becoming strong, right? And the Bible says, mental wisdom, the wisdom of his father, starts to increase. So intellectual or cognitive development, as well as physical development, is most prominent at this stage in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Then it says, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. When he became 12, he's no more a child now, he's adolescent. Right? So when he became 12, they went up according to the feast, according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy, everyone say the boy. So there's no more little, little child. He's left the two-year-old phase. He's now 12. He's boyish. All right? He is adolescent. And he's technon at this stage, as it were. And the Bible says... After spending the full number of days, um, they, left him be, they left Jesus. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were un, unaware of it. Everyone say unaware. So Jesus is functioning without authorization from parental authority. He, he may be God's son, but he must still so, so, show submission as a son of man to earthly parents that God puts the oversight in his life. You can be pregnant with great destiny. 
You can have the stuff in you. You, you can have a calling of God upon your life. But I've discovered most times God will always test your capacity first to submit to human agency that functions representatively of His authority in your life. And failure to submit to that authority will render your pursuit after expressing your divine calling illegitimate. There's no legitimacy to explore giftedness or destiny or functionality in what God called you to do until human agency representative of the authority of God positioned in your life sanctions it. You will see, and I, will, I want to demonstrate the scripture, this principle over and over from various portions in the scripture. It's a very important key, and I want to say it again. You can have an undisputed, authentic call of God upon your life that is incontestable. Everyone's fully aware of it. Mary knows it because God, the angel told Mary, this child in you is God's son. He has a destiny. Call his name Jesus. He's going to save his people from their sins. The global destiny afoot. Mary knows this. Joseph knows this. Jesus himself knows this. And Jesus stays behind to do his father's business, but without awareness of parental authority that God positioned in his life. Okay? So there's an attempt to do a thing secretly or clandestinely without the knowledge or the view or the sanction or the authorization of those individuals that God put in your life to watch over your soul. And so they are unaware. The word unaware, uh, gnosko, in the Greek literally means to know in a complete or fullest sense. So there is total, total disregard by Jesus for what Mary and Joseph represents in his life, although he's the son of God. Everyone say he's still a boy. Still a boy, right? And there's the seeming disrespect for parental authority that God has placed in his life. So he does what he wants to without the sanction or authority or condonement of those that God has positioned in his life. Then the Bible says, but they supposed him to be in the caravan. They went a, a day's journey. They began to look for him among their relatives and acquaintances. They did not find him. They returned to Jerusalem to look, looking for him. After three days... So this is now the fifth day, because a day's journey, you find out after a day going, he's not with us, where is he? Must be in Jerusalem. So you go back another day, that's two days gone. You're in the city, you spend another three days looking for the boy. So after five days, right, by this time you are irate as a parent. Right? Your, 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 your temperature has reached boiling point. Right? Where is this boy, although he's God's son, going to save the world? But he's functioning without authorization. Right? Now it says, verse 46, After three days they found him sitting in the temple, found him in the temple sitting in the midst of teachers, both listening to and asking them questions, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answer. So he's doing three things. He's asking questions. He's listening. And he's providing answers. He is the questioner. He's the listener, the questioner, and the answerer all in one. He's bamboozling the greatest rabbis of his day. Wouldn't you as a parent, you walk into the scene where Jesus, think of guys like Gamaliel, some of the greatest rabbis in Jewish rabbinical history, right? Jesus is sitting with the most astute doctors of the law, listening to them, asking the question, and providing the answer. And the Bible says they're all astonished at him. So which parent here wouldn't feel a sense of pride? Wow, check my boy. Hey, check the lighty out. My boy, dad, right? My son. If ever you want to claim sonship or fatherhood to a person, you know, like we do in the sports field. Right? We used to go, and when the boys... It's not, it's, not, it's not Fiona's son at that stage. It's my son. Right? No, you have nothing to do with my boy. Right? When the boy does well. When the boy does poor, your son. Right? 
right? Your genes are working, not mine, right? So if ever there was a time for Mary and Joseph to really, wow, check the lighty out, check the boy out, they were unimpressed, unimpressed at the degree to which he astonished the most learned minds of his day. They come in there and they say, shut the program down now. Close shop. Close the Bible study here. It's time to go back to Nazareth. Today I want to talk to you about Nazareth very, very seriously. Right? It's time to go back to Nazareth. Let me read this quickly. It says in verse 49, verse 48, They saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us in this way? Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. I want to encourage you, reduce the anxiety in your father about you. I'll say it again. Reduce the anxiety in your spiritual father about you. There's a level of, of anxiety I don't want to cause Pastor Thamo. If I'm his son. I don't want to bring him to a place of being anxious or, or, or being um, anxious about the things I'm up to. Because I've done them clandestinely. I've done them secretly. Or I'm, pursued, I'm in pursuit, listen carefully, of significant aspects of the will of God for my life without his knowledge or sanction. At that critical point in time, you lose recognition in the realm of the Spirit. What was Jesus? Look at the next verse. What was Jesus saying? He said to them, why, the, why is it? What's a big deal? It's like, what are you looking for me for? Check, check the, can you see the, the nuance of this? Why are you looking for me? What's a big deal? Did you not know? It's almost a degree of sarcasm here. He's saying to them, Mary, Joseph, you of all people should know what I should be about. Right? Didn't you know that I must be about, my, I had to be in my father's house? The King James says, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? Yeah, in the NASB, in my father's house, King James, my father's business, in the Greek, in fact, in the, in the NASB marginal rendering of the same text, the literal Greek rending is, did you not know that I must be consumed with the affairs or things about my father? That's the literal interpretation. Did you not know, Mary, I'm consumed and passionate about the things or affairs that concern my father? Right? You can be zealously passionate to pursue purpose, but if you violate protocol in the same, you render your, your, your passion or your, or your zeal is rendered Null and void. And any expression to do ministry might, be, might receive the applause of men. You're bamboozling everybody. Well done in the temple. But from heaven's perspective, there's no applause. Now, what do you want? Do you want men to applause you? Or do you want the father to say, my son? When did the father only say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased? It would happen 18 years later. He's 12 years old and raring to go. But 18 years later, after he proved, what? I will submit to Mary and Joseph for 18 years. At that point, and when he submitted to John's baptism, to John's person, to John's ministry, coming up out of the water of the Jordan. Jordan, which speaks of humility, rapidly descending. Jesus went down to the lowest point. In submission, then the heavens opened, and the father said, Hey, check my boy out. I like this. My son, in whom I am, well, please. Now, watch the next verse. But they did not understand the statement which he made to them. Many people decry the fact that a spiritual father might not fully comprehend all the details relative to my calling. Mary and Joseph did not know the fullest ambit of every detail attendant with the life of Jesus. The Bible clearly says they did not understand the... See, Jesus had a view about doing his father's affairs and being passionate about his father's business. Did you not know that, Mary and Joseph? What must I be about? Then the Bible says concerning parentage, the parents did not fully understand what he was saying. 
do not use the inability of spiritual parentage to fully understand all the aspects about the will of God for your life as a reason for insubmission. I think God sometimes uses two things happen here. God is accomplishing certain things in the Father, but He's testing submission in the Son. And you know, sometimes God will use and break your perceived expectations of what you want from spiritual fathering. And when from your perception, that person who is your father fails to measure up to your expectation, don't view the failure on the part of the father as a reason for insubmission. Because God can sometimes, in his, in his wise orchestration of things, portray weakness in a leader. Not that the leader is weak per se, but there's a process that is still to be accomplished in the leader. But from the vantage point of a, of your, of a son's viewpoint, you perceive that as you don't know me. You don't know my call. You're not fully aware with everything that is, is happening here. Don't use that as a reason for insubmission. Do you think right here was credible grounds for Jesus to be, to be unsubmitted? Right here he could have said, I have a perception of things that even you guys right now have no clue about. Hence, how can I submit to people that must guide and direct the affairs of my life when those very people fail to understand all the fullest extremities about my calling? Right? I want to say this again. In this, God is testing your heart. Right? Should not Jacob have known, or rather Isaac, that double portion belongs to Jacob and not Esau? Should not he have known? Right? But he, 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 in his mind, he thought he was imparting double portion to Esau. Because at the birth of the boys, it was prophesied, the older will serve the younger. Who's the older? Esau will serve Jacob. So who's firstborn? Come on, talk to me. Esau's firstborn in time, but Jacob came second. They're twins. Jacob came second out of the womb. Esau's first in time, but Jacob is first in rank, in spiritual authority. And when the boys were born, when the boys were born, a prophecy went out. The older Esau will serve the younger. So who is Jacob is firstborn. So why did not, and, and Isaac's fully aware of that prophecy. Why didn't Isaac, at the point at which the importation of birthright took place, why didn't he at that point deliberately call for Jacob? Right? Jacob could have well protested and said, why must I now resort to deceptive means, pretend to be Esau, to solicit what is truly mine? Shouldn't you as the father, already based on knowledge, informed to you by prophecy shouldn't you administrate this thing correctly god was not condoning esau or jacob's or isaac's mismanagement god was testing jacob's heart god was testing is there still tendency within you jacob to connive like you did your brother a few years ago when he wanted some soup. He was hungry, remember? And you, knowing what was prophesied to you at birth, you solicited what was truly yours by an attempt to get it via your own means. Huh? I want to say this to you. Relax. Tell someone, relax. The moment you get hyped up about destiny, you will start to do things in the flesh to get what is truly yours, but you will do it at great cost to you and your future. So I've learned now, I don't push nothing. I don't pursue nothing. If it comes to me, it will be God, I grab it. If it doesn't come to me, I'm very happy. Right? I've learned this. Jacob's still conniving, and I believe God permitted Esau to call, or rather, uh, Isaac to call for Esau, not Jacob, to test in Jacob whether that conniving deceiver is still afoot within him. 
Right? You know what? He did get the blessing. Not so? Got what was rightfully his. But there was, he, there was a self-imposed exile from his father's house for the next 20 years. He's dislodged, dislocated, 20-year deferment of purpose. While God was gracious, because while he was there, he acquired his two wives, two concubines, and 11 sons. Benjamin wasn't born yet. He would be born uh, the 12th, technically 13 sons if you really do it, because Levi wasn't a portioned land. So the, God used his, his carnality that caused deferment of purpose. God was still gracious to him in working out and giving structure to the man, structure that would form the tribal configuration of Israel. But the point is, you know what Laban said to him? I won't show you the scriptures, all in the notes. Laban said to him, after he ran away, he went to live with his uncle Laban. There he acquired Rachel and Leah and their kids eventually. When he comes, he realizes, I need to get back to daddy's house. Everyone say daddy's house. Say my father's house. Jacob said this to him. In all the 20 years that you've been with me, I've seen how you've longed for your father's house. In 20 years, I've seen how you've longed for your father's house. Let me just say this to you. It's not going to happen if you don't value the house. Many of you here got great callings, involved with various projects, doing different things, but you neglect the house. All you're doing is wasting time. Until you line up what you're doing out there with the grace resource from the house, it's going to mean very little. Even Joseph in Egypt realized this. I'm a ruler. I'm second to Pharaoh. The first executive decision after reconciliation with the brothers was bring daddy down here. I need patriarchal fatherly oversight to guide and direct my affairs in this locality. Right? I need that. That reality is growing upon me more and more. When I think about these things, disconnection from my father in the Lord is unthinkable. It's suicidal. Right? It's a deferment. I may come back after 20 years, right? but I have to live with consequences. Right? Do you know, oh yeah, let me get back to this. We're going all over the place today. The next verse, uh, verse 50. They did not understand the statement. Here's where I want to focus today. Verse 51. He went down with them and he came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them and his mother treasured, I like this, all these things where? You see, Joseph and Mary father Jesus. I believe Joseph and Mary represent both paternal and maternal aspects that should be in all spiritual fathering. Do you know that there's a maternity or maternal dimension within a spiritual father? Yeah? You know, Paul said to the Thessalonians, I long to gather you. He said to them, like a nursing mother gathers her children. He's a man, but he's talking in maternal terms. Right? True fathers always have a motherly instinct in them as well. And I think Mary here is modeling that component within the spiritual presentation of spiritual fathering present in Joseph and, and Mary. So listen carefully. What it is suggesting is, while I don't fully understand, I treasure the word treasure here, I, I won't give you the Greek text, it's in your notes. The Greek phrase literally means this, to put together, like one puts pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together so as to understand the completed picture. What is Mary saying? I might not understand, but I'm treasuring. This is, I've just seen another piece of the picture of your jigsaw puzzle. My son, while I might not fully appreciate the complete ambit of your call, I have just got a view of a critical piece. I take that and I will blend it into every other prophecy I receive from you, from shepherds who watch their flocks by night, from wise men who came from the east to testify of, of, of these things, from Simeon in the temple 
who took you and blessed you, from Anna the prophetess who prophesied a whole lot of things at the point of your dedication in the temple. I'm taking one more piece of your puzzle, of your destiny, and I'm framing it into the completed whole. I want to encourage every one of us. From my vantage point, I want to say this seriously, I treasure things in my heart about you. There are some things I don't fully understand, but I don't dismiss them. I take it and factor it into my spirit. And I know in time, God will reveal the season. By the way, you know what the next verse, this particular verse, I want to comment on in a moment. One verse, one verse describes 18 years of the life of a person. Luke 2.51, this phrase, went down. Everyone say went down. Say Nazareth. And then it says, continued in subjection. Come on, repeat that. Now say this with me. Went down. Nazareth. Continued in subjection. This happened for 18 years. He's 12 years old now. One verse is a characteristic uh, framing of 18 years of the life of the Son of God. There's not, no other detail we know about what happened in 18 years to Jesus except one descriptor, one statement. I go down. I go to Nazareth. I subject myself to you, even though you don't fully understand, but you're at least you're treasuring in your heart. All right? You know, it's, it's a very wise thing. You don't just submit to someone who doesn't understand. But at least the one who doesn't understand must treasure in the heart. All right? So, I will gladly submit to your oversight. And the next verse says, verse 52 is a powerful verse. It says the following, And Jesus said what? Kept increasing not only now physically and in wisdom. He goes from two-dimensional growth to four-dimensional growth. He increases in wisdom, mentally, stature, physically, and in favor with God and men. Right? Now, who wants to increase in favor? Come on. Favor is our topic next week. You can't miss next week's sermon. There's going to be impartation next week of the favor of God. I'm saying this as a prophetic statement. Listen carefully. Where you don't have the qualifications, you're going to need favor. Where you are ineligible to function, you're going to need favor. Yeah? And the Greek word charis is often translated favor in the New Testament. So yeah, where it says he increases and increases and in grace with God and in grace with men. And I'll, I'll explain this term next week. Okay? He increases in these, in these dimensions. You see, the word subject he continued in means this. I bow down. Hupatasso, remember the Greek word? Hupatasso means to, hupa means under, tasso means to set in right order. Hupatasso means to place under in right order. So for, for, for your life to be ordered, you need to be under somebody that can reorder your life to God's order. Because most lives are disordered. So, I always need to, to bow to another to put, watch, I might be fully ready divinely. I might be the son of God. No, my mandate is to save the world. My name is Jesus, Savior of the world. Might be fully ready. But spiritual parents, what do they do? They align aspects of my humanity to be thoroughly compliant with my calling divinely or spiritually. So that even though I'm well endowed or resourced spiritually, there's nothing lacking in my character that will not support what God has given to me spiritually. Because if I only look at what I'm called to do spiritually and not have the commensurate character to sustain it, there's a certain level beyond which I will never go. Your gift will only take you so far. But if your gift is not matched by the requisite character to sustain it, you will never reach the limits that God has intended for you to have. A spiritual father recognizes calling, but recognizes in the man. But in aspects of your humanity, there are certain things that need to be ordered. 
So I will build into your soul. I will, I will perfect your soul via the word of the Lord. So that ultimately, my son, the Lord Jesus, ultimately, when you stand at 30, and what is 30? Maturity. When you stand, even then after submitting to John the Baptist, submitting to his baptism, when you stand, there'll be nothing that the enemy has in you. Where he will have leverage to attack you or license to, to, to accuse you by, then you can say like you did, the enemy has come. The prince of this world has come, but he finds nothing in me. He could have found something in me at 12, but at 30, he finds nothing in me that grants him leverage or legitimacy to attack me. I want to get to the place where there's nothing in me. I'm saying to my spiritual father, I want to say this seriously to you, all of us. You need to hupatasso. You need to submit to another. All of you need someone in your life to speak as big and as powerful. You can be the president. You can be, you can be the president of the most powerful nation on this planet. You need to be fathered. Otherwise, you'll have all this power, no character to support it, and you will do more damage than good that you could have done by virtue of the, of the position you occupy. Okay? Now, do you know, oh, by the way, let me just think about this. In John 2, John 2, quickly. John 2. Was the first wedding at Cana, remember? It was Jesus' first miracle. The first miracle is very important because it sets the tone, the framework, all the principles. We don't have time to discuss this now. It's the principle of first mention in the Bible. Whatever is done first is very important to understand all that is done to follow. So in the first, watch in the first miracle. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana at Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. This maternal dimension in fathering has treasured all the things in her heart. Right? Not so? Then it says, both, of the, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. What's the subtle implication? Yeah. Do something. Then the Bible says, what did Jesus? Jesus said to her, Woman, now he's not being rude when he says this. It was perfect in Hebrew culture to talk like this. He says, not mother. He says, woman, what does that have to do with us? The fact that the, the wine has run out. Right? My hour is not yet. Now, it's like a complete flip of the coin, yeah? When you were 12, you thought you were ready. You're ready to go. Now, you're 30, a legitimate need. Your parent in the Lord says to you, now is the time, son. This is your hour. Go for it. Your response is, my hour has not yet come. Can you see how Jesus matured? Eh? There's no rush to demonstrate power. No rush to demonstrate to establish credibility, make a name for myself. Who am I? But you know what the next verse says? I like this. His mother said to the servants, the Spiritual parent takes control without his permission. She does the order of things and she says to the servants, whatever this guy says to you, do it. You see, it's different when a father sanctions, authorizes, legitimates spiritual activity. The sun rises up and you know the rest of the story. They had a ball. There was great joy in this wedding. Because the Bible says... The, wine, the water turned to wine was actually the best wine. Traditionally, they serve the best wine first. And when the people are drunk, they don't know what they're tasting. They serve the poorest wine towards the latter part. But the head waiter said, why have you kept the best wine for last? Right? I want to encourage you. You know, I've discovered, even in my own little way, every even international trip, that Pastor Thamo has authorized, has a very different level of success as to when I initiate something on my own. You see, I've realized...
the restraint of a father. Everyone say restraint. You must learn the restraint of a father is for your good. No true father will restrain to punish you. The restraint of a father, a father has a view of things and he knows when you are ready. I like this, Mary knew. Now son, now is the time. Now you are ready. Okay? You know? Some of us want to leave the starting blocks before the gun has gone off. That's called a false start. You know, many people have a false start in ministry. I want to say this is a caution. I'm feeling this very see. A caution to many in this house. Stop with the plans. Stop with the process. Until heaven has sanctioned it. And that being, that sanction, being witnessed to by human agency that God has put in your life. Right? Now, just quickly, Acts 13 verse 2. 1 and 2. Okay, I'm going to use my notes. This is a very prophetic session. Right? Is this fine? You can read the details when you, when you get to study this. There I went through this thing didactically and systematically. But I feel I need not to do that here, except for just now when I talk about Nazareth as we close. There was in the church at Antioch that was there certain prophets and teachers. Everyone say prophets and teachers. So who was in the church at Antioch? Everyone say prophets and teachers. This is a reference to the leadership of this church. Prophets and teachers at the church at Antioch. Five individuals are... Mentioned, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger. Niger means black, black guy was there, right? Barnabas, you know him. Simeon means one who is able to hear. The guy hears, acute hearing, right? Simeon was called Niger. Lucius means light bearer, illumination. All these guys have powerful dispositions in the leadership team at the church at Antioch, right? Mannion, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch. He was brought up in political courts with the Herod. He knew politics. The complement of the Antioch leadership team was an extremely powerful blend of graces to lead the city church. Not a local church, it's the church of the whole city made up of multiple households. An eldership recognized emerged over the city and these five individuals, Paul and Barnabas, are included in the list. Now watch what happens. Verse 2, quickly. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, I love this leadership team. Most leadership teams spend hours in committee meetings fighting. This leadership team, their focus was, we minister to the Lord and we fast. While they were doing that, the Spirit said, I believe not through a voice, through the ceiling, through one of the prophets there. The Spirit said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called. Question, who is speaking? Come on, talk to me. Who is speaking? Who said? Come on, according to the text. Yes, it's here. The Holy Spirit. Everyone say the Holy Spirit said. Has God got an intention for Paul and Barnabas? Must the other three recognize that? Right? There's a leadership representation over a whole city. Of the two of the five are, are separated for, watch, for called work. I have called them. Verse 3. When they had fasted and they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them. Everyone say, they sent them. But the next verse, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So who sent who? Who sent who? Holy Spirit sent them, but even Holy Spirit sending without human acknowledgement doesn't work. You see, you can say, I've got a call of God, call of God, plan of God. This must be done. X, Y must be done. But until humans who represent leadership recognize, discern that, until they, what, you know the way I read this, until they send them, you're not sent by the Holy Ghost. Amen. Human actions witness what the Holy Spirit wants. Not so? Amen. This is a classic case study of how Human actions and decision-making can be so right in God, so accurate, it's thoroughly reflective of the heart of God in heaven. Now, you can't take the human factor out of this equation. They sent them, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Another point you may note, that's not in my notes, it comes to my mind now. Remember the, the council at the church at Jerusalem? Acts 15 when there was a matter about should the Gentiles be circumcised or 
not. Right? How did they resolve the matter? Right? James gave a testimony, etc. Paul and others. Peter. But James, as the presiding officer, stood up and said, To this agrees the, what? The words of the prophets, Amos, who said in the last day, I will raise up the fallen tent of David and restore the remnant of Edom. Remember? You see, Amos could have prophesied it, but until James as a human recognizes it, the prophecy still hangs. God always puts human headship, human leadership, to endorse what is true of things in the spirit. Until the human endorses it, it lies unfulfilled. The point I'm trying to make is, you all need human officiation in your life. Nobody can just claim, I don't need human officiation, I am led by God. When the person says, God told me, and you have no say, then I say, if God said, even though I feel God did not say, carry on. Go on a 20-year deferment sabbatical. You'll come back one day. Until those put over in your life can witness to and endorse, which they will perceive too what the Lord is saying, nothing really happens. It doesn't just seem good to the one. It must, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Amen? Amen. Are you hearing? Come on, tell someone next to you, you need leadership. You need a voice. Now tell them this, go down to Nazareth. In 10 minutes, I want to talk about this quickly. You see, Nazareth, the word in Greek, has a very wide um, etymology. Its semantic range is extremely vast in terms of, its, of uncovering its meaning. And let me just give this to you. It first means the guarded one. Everyone say the guarded one. The reason why I'm drawing reference to this is because Jesus stayed in this city for 18 years. Well, literally for 30 years. But I'm referencing the 18 years in which he willingly subjected his life. Oh, by the way, it wasn't for subjection. The Bible says he subjected himself. It does not say they subjected him. It says, he subjected himself, right? So, um, I think I told you this, that the illustration Pastor Lafoy used to tell us about that, that child in the Anglican church one day was causing a racket next to the mother. Little, uh, a little child standing up on the chair while the priest is busy there making a racket. And she is so, feeling so embarrassed. This child is not submitted, disobedient. And she tells the child, sit down, Johnny, sit down. Sit down, Johnny. Johnny's hearing nothing. Performing, performing, performing. Sit down, Johnny. Then she whispers in Johnny's ear something, a threat. If you don't, da, 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 da. Johnny's quiet all of a sudden. She's happy. She's smiling. Is that submission? Then Johnny says in his heart, Mom, I might be sitting down on my chair, but in my heart, I'm standing up. (laughs) In me, I'm all you see is external compliance to a request, but there's a rebellious spirit within me that hasn't listened to you yet. You see, you can force subjection. I have discovered usually when submission is forced, it encourages rebellion. Submission must be natural. You will discover this as a teacher in classrooms. A lot of the time, I have discovered, yes, for some we have to lay down the law and be hard because they don't know any other way. Right? They live an unsubmitted life out there. For the first time, many students encounter submission in a classroom. Right? But I've discovered once they get to know who you are, who you are, what you are about, your levels of commitment to them. I've, I've, in my teaching career, I've seen students upon once, once upon a time where I have to literally, I literally insist, legislate submission. And yet when they get to work with me, they get to know who I am, my commitment to them, 
then I soon discover it becomes voluntary. It becomes then their joy to do it. I like this. He willingly submitted himself to them. All right? And you know what the Bible says? He continued. Everyone say continued. It wasn't fleeting. It wasn't sporadic. It was 18 years of the same disposition. Right? I want to encourage you, don't let it be now and then. Some of you come right for two weeks, then for one week you off again. No, brethren, that must stop. Eh? You must be submitted, period. Amen. He continued uh, in submission to them. So, God had won. You know what I glean from this? Humility expressed through submission is actually tremendous protection for you. You become preserved and guarded. Your disposition of submission is the fence of protection that you erect around your person. Your submission is the guarding factor in your life. Jesus lived in that environment, the guarded one, for 18 years of his life. And Sean alluded to this in, in the message at the table this morning. I really want to encourage you. You see, John in heaven, the Bible says he was lamenting of the fact that who is worthy to open up the seals and break the scrolls and reveal the contents thereof. John was depressed because of that. Then the voice says, there's one who is found worthy. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open up the seals. So when he turned, what, what did he see? Did he see a lion? What was the message? The line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. But the Bible says, John saw who? A lamb. A lion was announced. A lamb appeared. Lamb is humble. Lamb is innocent. Lamb is defenseless. In your seemingly humble position is in fact your strength. The lion is in the lamb. But don't look at the lamb just like that. Right? Your lion-like qualities is unearthed because of your mastery of your lamb-like disposition. Right? So in the world, when people see us, they think we can, we, we can rough, ride roughshod over us because we are always nice. We're humble, but don't unearth a lion in us. <laughs> Listen, I'm just joking. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, sometimes we see almost seemingly vulnerable positions like lamb, and we think that's weakness. No, in that position is the lamb, is the lion. Right? The God, when, when you submit you know, against all things kicking and screaming in your flesh, and you say, I will submit. To a degree, you feel vulnerable. But little do you know, that vulnerability is actually your protection. The guarded one. Secondly, it also means preservation. Nazareth means preservation. The guarded one, preservation. The disposition of being submitted is a culture that preserves you and keeps you. Thirdly, Nazareth also means branch. Everyone say branch. Various portions of scripture depict the Lord Jesus and sons of God like you and I as a branch. Like in John 15. I am the vine, you are the? You are the branches. The branch cannot be any fruit of its own unless it abides in the vine. Abiding in the vine is a picture of obedience. So whenever I think of Nazareth as a branch then, the whole city is depicted as a branch. The branch imagery denotes the imperative of an obedient lifestyle. We're going to be nothing until we are obedient. Do you know what it says in Hebrews 13? It says, obey them, submit to them, and obey them that have the rule over you. There's no, there's no submission without obedience. Obedience becomes the expression of how well you are submitted. So I want to encourage us all. Master obedience to everything I teach you, everything I suggest to you. That will demonstrate the degree to which you are submitted. There's no claim to submission without practical demonstrated obedience. Okay? But you know what? In Genesis 49, I think, 
verse 22. I think I have it in my notes here. 49, 22. You know what it says about Joseph? It says, Joseph is a fruitful bough. Prophecy by Jacob over Joseph in Egypt. You are fruitful. Everyone say fruitful. A fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over the war. Think of what Jacob, Jacob's prophetic impression of this son Joseph of his. Okay, Joseph, you've come to be second in charge under the Pharaoh. You've saved not only everyone in Canaan, but the then whole known world through your economic genius mind of saving grain for seven years before the seven years of famine. Wow, Joseph, when I see you, we prophesy over you, my son. You, you are a fruitful branch. Your, uh, your branches run over the... Everyone just do this, right? When, <laughs> when I think of prophecy, I just think, ah, branch, right? Uh, here's a wall. Wall indicates your influence is circumscribed. Your influence is, has a boundary, a limit. But of Joseph, it says... Your influence is going to go way over and beyond your present environment. Your branches will go over the wall. This is prophetic for some of you here. Come on, listen. Not with the mind of your spirit. Listen with the mind of your, not with the mind of your soul, with the mind of your spirit. I'm suggesting to Durban, Gate Ministries Durban Central. I'm suggesting to us, God wants to give us an influence way beyond what we perceive to be the natural limits of our influence. I'm seeing this happening with me almost daily. Our reach is going beyond walls. But I can only put it down to this. The more greatly we are submitted, the more God will extend our reach. Tell you never live in Nazareth. Tell you never become a branch. Become a branch whose, whose branches run over the, the walls. Did not Jesus have, well... It's almost, I think, ludicrous to even speak about him in these terms. Mm. Was not his reach global? <laughs> he came to save the whole world. Not so? Yes. Not so? I really want to encourage you. Um, I had a wonderful, uh, encouraging email from a significant person um, in the week. Uh, we were so blessed. And it came on Thursday at a point when I was feeling a bit low because of a particular thing. And an email came through. And I showed this to Renee. I said, look at this. It like lifted my spirit. My whole mood changed. It like I could dance. And the person said, I have been observing certain things. And this is no, not a person who can pull the wool over his face. I have been watching. I have been observing. And it's almost prophetic when he said, know this, that your influence is in a reach far further than you've ever dreamed. Simply because of a consistency and a sameness throughout. I want to encourage you. What is this life if all it is? We live for X number of years. We die and say bye-bye to the earth. If while we've lived, we've not impacted people. I live to impact people. My life must be impactful. I use every means available. Sam said this to me. Well, he said this to the conference at ALS, at ASIM. He, he, he promoted a particular website by which will afford him his own website, um, greater reach to people. Right? And he said this because the older I get, I realize I can't be everywhere. But my, I need to use the available technology to reach more people than I would be limited to by my person. I don't think local, think global. Just quickly as we close, there's, there's another meaning, last meaning of Nazareth is separated, crowned or sanctified. Separated, and now Jesus was like separated for 18 years, right? It's like God put him on, marginalized him, took him off center stage. Now how many of us have to be in center stage? Like he was ready to go. Jesus said, not now. <laughs> Come on. 18 years, separated. Because there, in your separation, it says you're going to be sanctified. And sanctified to be crowned. Sanctified for rulership. 
You know, I'm so glad God didn't release me even two years ago in the manner which he's doing now. I would have been ill-prepared for it. Honestly, I'm serious. In terms of certain issues in my character, I would not have been prepared for these things. Uh, and I'm still not. I think the more you... Sam said this to me once. He said, if you rule your flesh, if you rule your body, if you rule your cravings, there's no telling to what any other dimension God will give you to rule. But if you cannot rule this earth, how can you rule the earth? You want to rule so many things, but you can't even manage this piece of dirt, this flesh. So everyone say rule. So part of why Joseph and Mary was put in Jesus' life was to encourage his own process of personal sanctification, preparedness to the degree where he can stand as a ruler one day and fulfill the purposes of the Lord in his time. Amen? Okay, there are many other things which you're going to have to read the notes. Lastly, you know what Nathaniel said when they said they found the Lord and he's in Nazareth. He said, huh? Nazareth? And he makes a statement, can any good thing come from that place? Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Do you know it was prophesied that Jesus would be called the Nazarene? Right? Remember when Caesar Augustus and, uh, organized the census there to go to Bethlehem in Judah to be counted? Right? There the baby was born because it was prophesied he would be born where? Not in Nazareth. He would be born in Bethlehem. But remember when they had to go to Egypt and return. The Bible says, didn't return to Bethlehem, then he turned where to? And the scripture says, for so it was prophesied by the prophets, a Nazarene shall he be called. Nazarene, the guarded one, the preserved one, the place of sanctification, separation, the branch. You're going to live in that environmental context called Nazareth so much, watch, You'll be called by the very character of the city. You'll be called the Nazarene, living in Nazareth. Because what the city represents has so been imbibed into your person. Now you've become the guarded one. you preserved. you sanctified. you separated. Okay? You're like a branch who is thoroughly obedient, who has a reach beyond your, your present physical dimensions. Who wants to be like that? Yeah? And what the Bible then says, and Jesus was full of grace. At two years old, grace was on him. Between two to twelve, he kept, or rather the Bible says, from zero to, well, from two to twelve, grace was on him. From twelve to thirty, he kept increasing in grace by virtue of his submission. And at thirty, it says, and he's being full of grace. You know what the Greek word for full means? Literally, no space left for any other commodity to fill. Because the initial commodity, the first is so, is t is, is, it's, it's, it's maxed every capacity within it. When Jesus, instead of Jesus, he's full of grace, literally means not another space left in him to fill him more of the stuff. He was full to pleroma, he was full to capacity. How much grace do you need? How, how desperate are you are to come to this place where you say, I want to be so full of grace. Nothing left in me, all of grace. But unless I master the submitted life, consistent obedience. You know, some people tie it now and then. You get very few that will tie consistently as a matter of consistent obedience. Some people forgive now and then. You forgive this one, but another occasion you're not forgiving. It must be the same. It must be consistent. There must be a sameness throughout all that you do. Amen? must be a sameness throughout all that you do. Who wants to be full of grace? The Antioch leadership, I'm going to close with this. The Antioch leadership recognized the calling of God on Paul and Barnabas. They laid hands upon them. They sent them out. Next verse, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went on their first apostolic journey. Do you know what the Bible says? When they came back after a few months, the Bible says, and they came back to Antioch 
to report to the brothers all that the Lord had done in and through them. But you know what it says? They came back to Antioch from where they had been committed to the grace of God. Grace in Paul and Barnabas was the reason for the success of ministry. But that grace was activated because they bowed to the leadership of three other individuals who laid their hands upon them, recognized what the Holy Spirit was doing in and through them, and sent them out. Amen? The Bible says they came back to a place from which they were commended to the grace of God. Amen. Let's stand. If, if, if nothing else, I hope that I have unearthed a well of desire within you to grow in grace. If nothing else, I hope that I've, in, I've inspired you to be more submitted, to regard leadership more revelatory. Right? You're not just having a leader over you. Now you are saying, I need your voice, I need your counsel, I need your directives. I'm going to be submitted because that process of submission is key to me growing and increasing in the grace of God. There's no telling to what your branches will accomplish, where your branches will grow. Amen? They're growing over the wall. Hallelujah. Let's lift our hands. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Teach us the submitted life. Teach us to be submitted even when our flesh rebels. Help us to do this willingly, for you give grace to the humble. I bless your people today, every single one of them, even those that are not present here with us today. God, I pray the entirety of the house would be indeed blessed of the Lord today. We want nothing else but to follow the pattern of your Son. He is our model. He is, we aspire to be like the Lord Jesus. And God, when we see and read about Him in the fashion in which we did in His Word today, God, our desire is to submit at any cost. To do more in three and a half years what could potentially be done in 30 years. As your son did more in three than he would have done had he commenced at 12 I prophesy to many of us today that many of us will do more in a shorter time span by virtue of a submitted life than what we think we could do in a longer time span within submission. And I say this to you seriously, church. I just get that as I'm praying this morning. The Lord says, no time is wasted in submission. No time. You think it's 18 long years. No time. Because God says, I can do with you in three and a half years like the Lord Jesus did, where he said, it is finished. At 12, he said, I must be about my father's business. But at 33 and a half years old, before he died, he said, it is finished. I fulfill the plan. But he did that in three and a half years, foundationed upon 18 years of active submission. I prophesy the same to you. You will do more in less time. More in less time. When you leave this building, go out with those words ringing in your mind. I will do more in less time by virtue of my submission. Father, we bless you. I pray great grace and peace will be upon us all in your name. Amen and amen.